And the learning curve for batteries is nothing less than spectacular. Same with solar PV, same with wind, emphatically the same for offshore wind, same with late emitting diodes, heat pumps. We don't know how fast the prices will go down, but so far it looks great. Not good, but great. There will be hiccups, there will be spot shortages and things like that, but the trend lines on all these technologies are, are very strong. What we have to do is take advantage of those trend lines. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, I'm pleased to welcome to the show, Hal Harvey. Hal is a leading voice on efforts to reduce the impacts of climate change. He is the CEO of Energy Innovation, a San Francisco-based energy and environmental policy firm. Previously, Hal served as the founder and CEO of the Energy Foundation, which supports policy solutions that advance renewable energy and energy efficiency. Hal has also served on energy panels appointed by Presidents Bush and Clinton, and has published two books and many articles on energy and national security issues. He joined CSIS Energy Program Director Joseph Mikett to talk about the progress he is seeing on clean energy goals and climate solutions at this pivotal moment in the United States. Here's Joseph to lead the discussion. I think the best place to start, I do want to discuss the book, The Big Fix, but I think the best place to start is where you think we are at the moment. It is the winter of 2023. The Inflation Reduction Act passed last summer. The U.S. has a very substantive approach to climate and energy now. And I'd love to start our conversation with, well, actually, let me take a step back. The IRA passed last summer. Energy Innovation, your shop, played a big role in thinking through the design of that policy and how we're going to approach decarbonization around the around different sectors of the economy. So maybe I'd like to start with your general observation of where the US stands now and what's important for us to get right over the next couple of years to realize the best aspects of the IRA, the bipartisan infrastructure law toward decarbonizing. Uh, it's a great moment to ask that questions and a uh, challenge to answer it succinctly, but I'll give it a I'll give it a whack. So I think Technologically and even politically, we're at an inflection point in clean energy. It is now the cheapest source of electricity on planet Earth, our solar PV and wind. And offshore wind is coming along at a rapid clip. Um, energy efficiency technologies, things like heat pumps have had terrific progress in recent years. So we're moving from a realm of higher prices for cleaner to lower prices for cleaner technologies, which is a rather fantastic place to be. What that doesn't account for, though, is what I would call the non-financial obstacles to deployment. Things like with heat pumps, how do you how do you train an army of installers to refit your heating system when the furnace goes out? Or the Inflation Reduction Act, which puts out you know upwards of four hundred billion dollars for clean technology but doesn't have a wording. So if it's cheaper to build a solar PV farm, but you can't get the permits, um, we didn't win the game yet. I'm optimistic. I think we've made incredible progress. I think 2022 will be remembered as a year when the page really turned on clean energy deployments really sped up, uh, but we're not done with the homework. What the Inflation Reduction Act really did was change the price equation for clean technology by giving out tax credits. It's all, it's all carrot and no stick. I'm exaggerating a little, but not much. And that's that's fantastic. We're going to see record deployment levels. 
And one of the things that happens with record deployment levels is you drive the price down even further uh, because of learning curves. And the learning curves, we always think of them as technology learning curves, photovoltaics getting cheaper, getting more efficient and so forth. But there's also learning curves in business models, in marketing, in finance, and so forth. So we're moving into the realm of mass deployment. That's exactly where we need to be in these days. A couple of unknowns is if you want to build a wind farm or or solar farm, you need a site, you need transmission access, you need financing, you might need an off-taker agreement if you're not selling into a, a market, and you need construction permits. And those can take decades to get right now, the waiting line for infrastructure hookup. So you need an interconnection allowance from the FERC. It can take five years to get that single permit. The example we cover in the book is uh, Phil Anschutz, who's a right-wing billionaire in Denver, wants to put in the biggest wind farm in America in the windiest part of America, eastern Wyoming. And he has spent um, close to 15 years and close to $150 million to get all his permits. And it's still not being built or not built yet. So there's a way that we can snatch defeat from the jaws of victory by failing in the non-financial obstacles now that we've cleared out the financial obstacles. In one of your chapters with Justin in the book is saying yes, right? Which I think is your your way of invoking that we have to sort of create a regulatory environment. I would even say there's like aspects of culture here, which maybe we can talk on about in a little bit for deploying a lot of clean infrastructure faster than the market would provide it today. We know that there's a conversation, there was a conversation that followed the IRA in the Congress. Senator Manchin had a permitting reform bill. We know that the Congress, as it looks forward to the next two years, is interested in revisiting that conversation. What are the key boundaries in your mind to permitting reform and the the conversation that we're likely to see? What are the things that have to happen for for decarbonization, for providing more reliable energy at lower cost? And what are the things that you think uh, people should be wary of? So let's jump into the permitting conversation right away, because it's so important. The approach that I favor is to set strict standards, make them crystal clear, do them in advance, and then commit to rapid processing of applications. So you're not compromising on environmental questions. These are important questions, but you're adjudicating them quickly and ideally in advance. And what do I mean by in advance? Government agencies should uh, zone areas as red, yellow, or green for development. They should do it before the permits are applied for. If it's in a red zone, like a wilderness study area, forget it, it's never gonna happen. If it's in a green zone, if you meet the strict standards, you're gonna get a permit in 90 days. And if it's in a yellow zone, we go to war. Right now, everything is a yellow zone. But that's a constitutional change. I don't mean in the legal sense, but in the sense of the body of your work for environmental organizations. The National Environmental Policy Act uh, is one of the organic, one of the original environmental laws in America. And it requires federal agencies uh, and large developers to do an environmental impact assessment for any big project. It doesn't say after you've done the assessment that you should go ahead or not go ahead or choose one alternative and not the other alternative. It's just the process is required rather than an outcome from the process. So in some ways, it's a very thin read on which to base environmental protections. Environmental groups have have dealt with this by making it hard to do an EIS. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of paper. And I can't blame them. When you're given a weak tool, 
you use it to its max. So what I'm saying is give them a stronger tool, but a faster one. So I, I think there's room for that. The question about the mansion bill, in my opinion, is if you let somebody skirt environmental review for political reasons, then everybody's going to want to skirt it for political reasons. So it, it should be a meritocratic question. It can be fast, but it's got to be landed on the merits. Otherwise, we just end up in a situation where political favors are bandied back and forth to get projects done, which is rather un-American, I think, or maybe all too American. In your book, you talk about the example of a, of a large wind farm. What would be the largest wind farm in the United States in eastern Wyoming? Now, clearly, there is not a population that needs all that wind power in eastern Wyoming. So it's gonna, it would be shipped to California, if I have it right. Building large transmission lines also requires a host of environmental permits, as well as entrance into the electricity system through planning and cost allocation and all these sort of technical details for how we run the grid. One question I'd be interested in your thoughts on is to what extent is, and acknowledging there are lots of challenges with NEPA, but how much are other provisions of law, other regulations going to need to be part of the conversation around building enough stuff quickly, building enough infrastructure quickly? It's quite an issue. I think the most important question is, can FERC rethink on a rapid pace the way it handles the interconnection queue? We have to hook up a lot of new uh, electricity sources to the grid. We have to expand the grid itself. We have to manage the grid more efficiently. We have to move from device optimization to system efficiency, system optimization. And that requires a FERC to get out of its old boundaries and old methods. Managing a renewables intensive grid is fundamentally different business than managing a simple dispatch grid. I studied uh, power systems engineering at Stanford in my, engineer, my graduate program in engineering. Very little of what I learned is directly applicable today. That's good news. <laughs> I mean, it makes me feel obsolete. But the point is, we need a different method for operating the grid, a different uh, interconnection standards. We need to look at the, uh, why do we have 134 balancing areas in the Western United States? We should have one. <laughs> so there's a lot of antiquated, uh, you might even call it central planning clutter that gets in the way of running the grid, building and running the grid the way it needs to be built and run. And that doesn't even get to the new stuff we have to build in order to get there. Yeah, and it also doesn't get to these this sort of other modalities that we expect to see, right? Higher levels of storage, demand side management, all the stuff that allows a system to run more effectively and more efficiently. One of the things that I'd be interested in, you know, I'm interested in a lot of what you have to say. The next thing I'd you know, I'd love to touch on is a lot of the benefit that you talk about, both in the book, a lot of the theory of change behind the IRA is renewables are now the sort of cheapest thing on the margin. If you're just going to go out and build some capacity, you likely want to do it with renewables. But the systems costs are the things that consumers feel. So to what extent are you concerned that the system costs can go up even as we're adding a lot of renewables to the grid? Like, we have a low cost source, but balancing everything and building it fast enough introduces costs that might slow down overall decarbonization. Is that something you're concerned about? It, it's a problem. If you look at, well, my state, California, where you have, you're paying for old nuclear power plants that got shut down before they were fully paid for. You've got energy efficiency programs, you've got an R&D program. 
you have fires and fire damages you have to put out. Um, they had a big explosion and killed a bunch of people. They have to provide electricity. They have to provide natural gas. They have to underground. Their goal is to underground 10,000 miles of electricity wires. Almost all of that is before you've sent your first kilowatt hour of electricity down the line. So the fixed costs are growing and the marginal costs are declining. And so far, the fixed costs have won. <laughs> but if you, if you really think ahead, if you have a 10 or 15 year vision ahead, that begins to flip around pretty well because solar and wind last a long time. And the levelized cost of energy benefits accrue every year from deployment on. We typically calculate them for the next 10 years, but they're going to, I put in a solar system 40 years ago that's still generating electricity. And I built a house about 38 years ago that's passive solar in a very cold part of the country. It still works just fine. So you need to begin to think of these things as investments rather than expenses. There are some issues that are more complicated, which is how do you deal with resources that you need episodically and rarely, but when you need them, you need them. How do you keep Texas from going to blackout state for three days because of a cold front? And I would say the, you know, the world's divided, the electricity world's divided into free market absolutists where everything's marginal cost dispatch and nothing else matters. And those who believe there, you have to make some allowances for the market not being perfect or some compensations is a better word. I'm in the latter camp. I don't think, I think the bulk of electricity can trade on the market. That's fine. But it's government's job to create buffers. We do it all the time. We do it with transportation systems. We do it with military systems. We do it with food systems. There's no reason we can't do it with electricity systems. But there's an even more compelling to do it with electricity systems than every other one because without electricity, everything grinds to a halt. Especially in an increasingly electrified economy, right? Three things happening all at once. A greater penetration of electricity just as a means of production in the economy, decarbonization and growth of the electricity system. And I would argue, you know, changes to climactic conditions that will create stresses as consumption patterns change. All those things have to be managed really carefully. And just to add a fourth, we're looking at more variable energy sources and fewer fixed energy sources. I'm convinced, and we've done a lot of analysis on this, that you can make the grid more stable rather than less stable in a renewables intensive environment, but you have to plan for it in a different way. So in some ways, the risk is not physical or financial, but it's operational and even cultural. So let me pivot a bit to your book. I mean, you, you've written several books on energy and climate issues. The most recent is The Big Fix, which you authored with Justin Gillis, New York Times climate reporter. In it, you outline seven fixes, seven practical steps to reduce, respond to the risks of climate change. Electrifying everything. Let me see if I get them right. It's a quiz. Improving energy efficiency, making greater use of electric vehicles, urbanizing, reducing meat consumption and the uh, emissions intensity of the food system, cleaning up industry, and inventing the rest, which is leaning heavily into innovation for all sources of emissions and sectors that are unaddressed by those others. Did I get the seven correct? You passed the test without a, without a single mark against you. Excellent. Yeah. So saying yes ends up being kind of like a, a bonus eighth practical step. But in this context, I take it you wrote much of the book before the Inflation Reduction Act. So now the Inflation Reduction Act has a bunch of tax credits for electrifying things and, and reducing the carbon intensity of the electricity system for deploying electric vehicles. I think some for energy efficiency, 
and some probably for, for cleaning industry. Do I map that correctly? Yes. So when you think about the practical steps that you outlined, how much of this is now solved or are what you're asking uh, citizens, scientists, business people to do only made more important by the existence of the IRA because now there's opportunity to, to move quickly? Well, you might ask a farmer who has plowed her land whether she's done with the cropping, right? You still have to plant seeds. You have to cultivate them. You have to make sure they don't get overtaken by weeds. You have to harvest. You have to sell and so forth. The Inflation Reduction Act is a fantastic and important piece of legislation. I don't want to belittle it by any means. But if it, it needs to be matched by pretty brilliant deployment, and it needs to be matched by citing regulations, as we've discussed, citing accelerants. And it needs to develop new business models and new ways of being. It's really interesting to watch. We just released a report yesterday that argues that 99% of the coal plants in America are now uneconomic compared to renewables. And we looked at sites within 30 miles of existing coal plants, because that's where the apparatus is, of hookups for your wires and so forth. That doesn't mean all power plants go away overnight, but it's a great tailwind. I should say all coal power plants. So I think we're going to see the effective end of coal within the decade from now. There might be a few plants sort of sputtering along, but they won't be in the main. However, gas carbon growth has been growing rather rapidly, and that's a tougher nut to crack. And gas is as bad as coal. It you know looks cleaner, <laughs> looks shiny. It's a very simple molecule, CH4. But if you look at the even very low numbers for methane leaks, for natural gas leaks, um, it takes you into the greenhouse gas, uh, greenhouse impact level, even with coal. So one question is how do we handle gas? And that has not been resolved. There's some other questions where the less it, the, the answer is clear and it's happening, but we don't know how fast. For example, the transformation of vehicles to electricity, electric vehicles. I've had, a, I've had a few EVs, including one I built myself 30 years ago, commuted it for five years and then sold it. Was it a conversion or did you build it from the ground up? It was a conversion, but it was almost the same thing. I took a, a Ford Escort, which is a horrible car in the first place, or at least it was then. And you take out the engine, the transmission, the cooling system, the electrical system, the suspension system, the brakes, the vacuums, the accessories, and you're left with a rather ugly piece of metal, but it does have all the mounting brackets and, and so forth. So me and some buddies in high school shop class did this, tried to do the same thing with the Geo Metro, but we could never get it to go anywhere. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Then I graduated and had to move on. So the question is how fast and for how long and what will be the saturation point for electric vehicles? Do we go to 100% as California is going to require and Europe too? Or does it peter out after sort of naturally after 60, 70%. We don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, I, I sort of, I suspect I know the answer, but what's what's your current thinking on how much of that change will be driven by regulation, corporate practices, and, and customer preference? I mean, I was just at the DC Auto Show and electric vehicles are a big part of almost every maker's display. And a lot of them have targets not dissimilar from California's in terms of, of sales volumes. So a lot of it will be driven by market forces, not 100%, however. Um, and whether a lot is 60% or 80%, I can't tell. So far, most offerings have concentrated on the luxury segment where you can tack on 10,000 bucks for the batteries without people getting too upset. They're spending that much on their leather and their stereo. But 
we do need to mop it up with regulations. So I like the idea of start with subsidies, phase them out, start with light regulations, phase them in. So you have one curve going down and the other curve going up. Now, one of the things the book does is it focuses in every chapter on what we call the learning curve, which is how fast do technology prices go down as volumes go up. That works in every single sector. And the learning curve for batteries is nothing less than spectacular. Same with solar PV, same with wind, emphatically the same for offshore wind, same with late emitting diodes, heat pumps. We don't know how fast the prices will go down, but so far it looks great. Not good, but great. There will be hiccups. There will be spot shortages and things like that. But the trend lines on all these technologies are, are very strong. What we have to do is take advantage of those trend lines. We have to move them down faster. We have to move them down farther. And we have to build sales up to volume where they're not yet at volume. For example, heat pumps need much more volume to drive the price down faster. But this is our friend. We need to make it so. Yeah, I was um, just reading the IEA's recent low carbon technology report, right? So this is where they're sort of trying to understand what the cumulative effect of countries' industrial strategies is. It's a really interesting document, actually. And interestingly, for EV batteries, it seems like we what we expect to be manufacturing globally 10 years from now will kind of meet a relatively ambitious market for EV penetration around the world, right? If you look at the Chinese, European, and US markets, heat pumps was one of the places they saw a shortfall. Like We, we just might not have enough to deploy the, that technology fast enough to have it fully realize decarbonization benefits. What does the book say about heat pumps? Well, first, a word about what heat pumps do is they take one unit of electricity and they produce three or four units of heat. So they're kind of magical. They're based on the same technology as a refrigerator, where you have an expansion cycle where your refrigerant expands and cools things down. And you have a compression cycle where the refrigerant heats things up. You just run them backwards. So for a refrigerator, you want, you're trying to capture the cold. And for a house, you might want to capture the warmth. So you reverse the cycle. There are many variables with heat pumps to optimize them. My fear about heat pumps is not about their performance or even about their supply chains, although there are issues, but rather about how fast we install them. Most HVAC contractors don't put heat pumps in. They put in gas heaters. Gas heaters use three or four times as much energy to produce a, a, a unit of warmth as heat pumps do, or electric. Electric resistance heaters are even worse. So it's the business model, it's the vocational training. One great thing about this revolution, this clean energy revolution, is that it's going to create, is already creating literally millions of high quality, well-paid blue collar jobs. You don't need a college education to install a solar field, um, but you're gonna get a decent paycheck for it. We don't have nearly as strong vocational training programs in America as they do in say Germany. Uh, but we're going to need to clean that up and accelerate that work, especially for heat pumps, to be successful at scale. And what kind of training does one need to be a heat pump installer? Well, it's not that different from a traditional HVAC, heating, ventilating, and air conditioning installer. But you need special instruction or software tools on sizing, on uh, venting them properly, because uh, if you don't vent them properly, they don't work, on having them know when to switch over into conventional resistance heat. For example, when it's extremely cold, at the scientific level, there are better and better refrigerants that are coming along that are more benign for the atmosphere and so forth. It's not a difficult uh, or huge amount to learn, but it's got to be done well. So I would say 
a four-week course that's devoted to heat pump sizing and installation for an experienced plumber or experienced HVAC contractor is probably about what's needed. Interesting. So this is going to sound like a weird question and it'll start relatively high level, but I think it's, you're one of the only people who can handle it. Your book does a really, it does a fantastic job at a task that I've often wondered about, right? So by this time, if you're paying, if anybody who's listening to this podcast is kind of familiar with the idea of taking an energy system model and asking it to go to net zero, and then a bunch of stuff comes out, right? You need this many heat pumps, you need this much solar power, you need this, this much energy efficiency uh, rebuild. Your book actually articulates a set of interventions at the political level, within businesses, that might help us realize that world, right? Sort of reverse engineering the process, which results in a computer model output. For a lot of them, you need consume willing consumers, right? Eventually, people make a decision. Do I replace my HVAC unit with a gas heater or with a heat pump? Is my next car purchase an electric vehicle or not? When we rehab the kitchen, do we also make a bunch of investments in energy efficiency? I'd be really interested in your thoughts on you know, that the consumer side of things. What's the right balance between better products and regulation? Where do city governments and state governments and the federal government all play a productive role? Well, it's kind of a both-and question. You ideally want motivated consumers, and ideally you need the supply of fantastic goods. But we are not focused on changing consumer behavior. We're, we're focused on changing systems so that every kilowatt hour of electricity you buy is a clean kilowatt hour so that electric vehicles are the best out there and they're the natural choice. We're emphatically against uh, the sort of sacrifice sacrificial approach to climate change. But policy is absolutely required. There's, there's no two ways around it. Take something as simple as office building heating system. Most office buildings, the tenant pays the utility bill, the owner pay, decides on capital equipment. The owner has no incentive or very thin incentive to increase the energy efficiency of the building. And the tenant has no ability to do so because they're in there for three more years and they don't control the capital investments. It's called the renter's dilemma. Turns out something like the renter's dilemma uh, appears in almost every sector of the economy. So the, the question is not whether you need policy, but which policies are most effective and how do you drive them so that they're economically efficient? And that's a much more interesting question. The further question, and this is where we spend quite a bit of time in the book, is who decides and how do they decide and how can we flip them? So when you send in your check to your local electric utility every month, does that money land on clean or dirty energy choices? And who decides? And it turns out that in every sector of the economy, there's a relatively small number of highly specialized decision makers, and they don't show up on most people's radar screen. But they're the ones that are deciding whether you get a climate-destroyed future or a climate-safe future. So what we've done with the book, the big fix, is say, these are the policies that matter. And here's who decides, and then offer suggestions on how to make your voice heard. Now, we have another book called Designing Climate Solutions, which goes into detail on policy design. And amazingly to me, there was no such book like that out there beforehand. But if you're going to have a fuel efficiency standard for vehicles or a building code, how you do it really matters. And, it, and the, the practice is nascent for most of the world. So we've done a detailed handbook on that. The big fix is nothing like that. The big fix has stories, is more compelling, is more written for a general audience. 
Uh, but they both land on the same menu, just at different routes. Yeah, I mean, I, the, to me, designing climate policy solutions is a policy book. It makes sense for me to read it. This is this is a different book because it tell like you know, policies don't come from a vacuum. They come from civic engagement. They come from politics. And this book is a little bit about that, I think. You mentioned wanting to talk about energy security. So as we kind of look at a quarter hour left to go, I'd love to do that. You remarked earlier, the US, we're not quite sure what we're going to do with gas. We have this incredible gas resource, the exploitation of shale. And we saw over the last year, US exports playing a critical role in European energy security. Over the next decade, right? Say IRA implementation goes well. We're building lots of renewables. It's totally feasible that the US is using less gas domestically. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that other side of the energy system. As you go through the clean energy revolution, what, what's our obligation and what's our opportunity with respect to uh, oil and natural gas from the US? And, and where should we think about guardrails, climate and otherwise, in using them or continuing to produce them? So a great question, and I can answer it in great detail in three minutes. Not. <laughs> it's first worth taking a quick trip through history to understand how profoundly energy shapes our national security dilemmas. So the first one, the first energy-related recession we had was in 1973 when Gerald Ford was president. Uh, we invented something horrible at that time called stagflation, where the economy is both stagnant and inflating at the same time. And uh, even smart economists haven't figured out how to win that one, except through immense amounts of fiscal pain, which is what we did with Volcker. Probably cost Jimmy Carter his job. The second recession was in 1978 or 77. In the meantime, Jimmy Carter reinstated the selective service and created the rapid deployment force. So we allocated $50 billion a year for military forces aimed at the Middle East and stationed in the Middle East. There was no strategic reason for doing that besides oil and energy. We weren't spending those sums of money for in other geographies that weren't oil rich. I mean, the one-to-one con- con- comparison is clear. <laughs> we helped fund the militarization of the, mil- of the Middle East and not always to our benefit. We funded a lot of unsavory characters there. We ended up funding both sides of the war on terror. There's a book by a former CIA agent who documented very clearly, very carefully, where terrorist groups got their money, and it was from oil, overwhelmingly. So we funded both sides of the war on terror. We're doing the same thing now. If you look at the war in the Ukraine, you know, we're financing Putin, and we're financing the Ukrainian resistance. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. So 50 years after the first oil crisis, we're letting Europe slip into another economic crisis because we haven't broken our, the stranglehold of oil and natural gas on our economy. And then you mentioned climate change. I don't see how you can call a German town secure when the entire town washes away in a storm, a town that's been there for hundreds of years. I don't see how you can call the American West secure when it's aflame. We've lived through that very recently and so forth. So if you're, if you're signed up to defend and protect America as part of your legislative oath, your taking of office oath, and you don't deal with climate change, <laughs> something's wrong, right? You're not doing your job. So our national security is profoundly affected by climate change, but we seem to have like a six-month memory about this, constantly erasing the past. So if, if all those problems come down to our dependence on oil, maybe it's time we rethink our dependence on oil or oil and natural gas. 
And so this is what makes me nervous about the rush to gas as an answer to the Ukrainian crisis. It's like a rush to back to heroin because I'm tired of methadone. I mean, it's really insane. Now, I would stipulate um, that when you come in advocating for solar or wind or other energy sources that don't require imported fuel and don't have fuel price variability, that they have to guarantee they'll be at least as reliable and at least as cheap or close to as cheap as conventional energy. But so far, they're just going into a free market. They're going to raise prices. American industry that's located along the Gulf Coast is starting to get very worried because as we internationalize the trade of natural gas, we expose our gas, if you will, to international prices, which are much higher. We're just being stupid, sometimes on steroids in response to the Ukrainian crisis. And it's not acceptable to do stuff that we tried 50 years ago and failed. It's just not. So, I mean, you talk to European policymakers, right? You you know that, yes, US LNG played a huge role in, in, in making sure they got enough energy this year or the past year as Russia uh, shut down supplies and, European, and Europe was also trying to wean itself off of Russian dependency. Those high prices also matter because they, every European policymaker I've talked to is saying the path out of this is renewables, right? That buying LNG is a very, very expensive way to secure energy for, the, for their population, probably necessary for some time, but renewables build out seems to be the thing that is capturing most policymaker attention. That's where you're seeing accelerated permitting. They're doing a lot of things in Europe that we probably should be thinking about doing for ourselves as well. Amen. I, I agree. There remain some big questions, though. For example, an LNG export terminal takes about four years to build. So you don't build it in response to a crisis. You build it in response to a strategy. So until somebody says with some analysis behind it that this is the right route for LNG in a carbon-constrained world, uh, building them willy-nilly is a little ridiculous. You know, we're, we're just going to be dependent on another fossil fuel. Now, I, I like to think American fossil fuel supplies are more stable than those from Russia. <laughs> I'm sure they are. But the climate doesn't care and long-term economics don't care. So let's think, let's stipulate we have to export more, na more natural gas in the short term, but let's not build a whole nother generation of infrastructure that's, that creates dependence on natural gas in the long run. So we can use this crisis fantastically to our benefit if we're willing to be a little bit courageous and a little bit visionary. And I have to say, many European countries are doing exactly that. The European Green Deal is going to do exactly that when it's finalized. That said, the worldwide rush to gas is a non-trivial problem. It impacts Southeast Asia, Japan, Korea, uh, parts of Europe, and big hunks of the United States as well. will have a new dependency if they're not careful, or already have it, we'll, we'll expand it. So what do you make of dependency on the other side of things, right? You know, I sort of understand, well, if you build a wind farm, you build a solar farm, nobody's going to block the wind, nobody's going to block the sun. But it's not like supply chains for clean energy are entirely Arctic, right? And we, we have to have a globalized supply chain, uh, or at least a partially globalized supply chain for all these kinds of goods. What do you think about in terms of energy security in a world where we're building a lot more renewables. We're relying more on these complex integrated systems. And how are we going to make sure that we don't create similar paths of dependency through China or, or through other countries? 
That's an important question for the whole economy, actually, not just the energy side of the economy. We lived through about a decade and a half of incredible capitalism, free markets, low cost of exchange, low cost of shipping, surplus goods, low inflation. I mean, it was kind of the dream scenario leading up until just recently when we started to hit these weird shortages. And I think what happened, in my opinion, what happened is we began to believe that government efficiency and private market efficiency were the same thing. So the private markets hate in inventory. Uh, they like just-in-time because you don't, tie, you don't tie up capital with just-in-time delivery, just-in-time manufacturing. They try to cut every expense down to the bone, which means doing fast shipping. It works really well when it works really well. However, we have no idea where the fracture points are until we hit them, right? So uh, an earlier flood in Fukushima turned out to manufacture all the chips for cars or almost all the chips for cars. So car assembly lines all around the world shut down. Who knew we were so vulnerable to one factory getting wet? We didn't know that. And so now this is starting to come up. There's an egg shortage in America, for God's sake. I mean, what did the chickens form a cartel? There's all kinds of places in the economy that we took for granted would run smoothly that actually only run smoothly under pretty rare conditions. And then if you look at the public efficiency question, inventories are good. You want to have a lot of fire trucks that are rarely used. You want to have a lot of ships in the merchant marine that you can commandeer overnight for shipping goods when you need to. You want supermarkets to carry more than their load for when the electricity goes out so that they can last a little longer and so forth. So it's government's job to provide buffers. And we do it in some ways with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and various other minerals petroleum reserves. Uh, there's FEMA, which is almost by definition an emergency aid and so forth. But we haven't thought through dependencies in a systematic way. And we haven't thought through where is it in government's interest to create redundancy, create inventories. It's a whole other field than energy, but it's part of energy, too. I think clean energy, one thing it's got going for it is less system risk because your solar farm can go offline without bringing down the whole grid. If you have smaller unit size and more diversity in your units, you'll have less instability. However, it puts a higher burden on the planners. I mean, if you were in charge of the grid in Texas, you had some pretty bad days in the last three years. Um, because you let the utility system, the free market, decide how much energy to build and at what price to sell it. That works great 90% of the time, 95% of the time. But that 5%, there are billion, multi-billion dollar shocks to the system. So in the electricity world, in the old days, you'd require 10%. You'd take the peak load, you'd add 10%, and you'd require your utilities to be able to meet that at any day. There's nobody making that requirement in a systematic way in Texas right now. There's ERCOT that's supposed to do it, but they sort of tiptoe around the issue. So because energy is the sine qua non for the entire economy, we should build more buffers. We should build, we should overbuild more. What does that overbuild? What does that look like? Is it capacity? Is it we should have, you know, we should have a big pile of lithium out in Colorado? Like what's the where do you think about adding capacity in an effective way? I recently made a list of this. So there's demand response. How much demand How much demand is flexible and at what price? We don't know that. Um, they found six gigawatts of flexible demand in California. That's a big number. That's six times as big as Diablo Canyon. There's price flexibility. You know, there are customers who are willing to have their electricity cut off in exchange for a low price on electricity most of the time. So that's another source of stability. There's heterogeneous renewables. Offshore wind is countercyclical compared to onshore wind. That's pretty cool. Uh, PV from Las Vegas 
peters out an hour before PV in Los Angeles. There are opportunities for electricity swapping. Seattle and San Diego never have the same peak demand or the same peak supply. So use wires to connect them to. So there's system balancing via the grid, which is a big deal. On the supply side, there's all kinds of things you can do. You can pay somebody to have a turbine that hardly ever runs. I'm in favor of using natural gas turbines for extreme peaking. If a gas turbine runs 100 or 200 hours a year, the climate impact is negligible, but the system impact can be fantastic. So how much are you going to pay them to sit still? We've always paid power plants to sit still until now. So that's a kind of an own goal, right? So there, there are many, many options. I found uh, almost two dozen. And what, what you get is a, if you have a good system operator, they optimize across them all, across the family of options. And then I would add to that island ability, right? If you have a problem in the grid, the grid should be able to isolate that problem and shut down a small number of houses and factories, a small geographic area. We've had blackouts that covered almost half the United States. There was a blackout in India that covered 600 million people. That's dumb engineering. What's the difference between island ability and a more integrated system that allows you to ship power from San Diego to Seattle? Help a listener understand those how those two things go together. So you're trying to capture the benefits of long-distance transmission without the liabilities of long-distance transmission. So you hook them together, you have a market that lets you send electrons in the right direction, uh, but you have, you've digitalized the sensing and the control. So as soon as it sees a, as soon as the grid sees a, a problem because a fallen tree, you know, crushes a power line, it isolates that problem. It turns off electricity right around there, right away, before it can spread. The electrical system tends to, if you trip one part of it, it trips subsequent more and more parts of it. So island ability is isolate the problem and stop it right very close to its source. I want to hear what the rest of that twelve is. Is there a book that's going to articulate them all? <laughs> um, we've we've just published a paper, but I after what I did yesterday, I think we're going to want to expand it. It, it lays out how you get to ninety nine percent decarbonized grid. I can shoot you that paper, but if you go to energyinnovation.org, we have a whole suite of papers that get into some of these complex questions, and they're they're readable and they're carefully vetted and peer reviewed. Al, I always think so much of of your writing and your ideas. I'm really grateful that you joined us today. Is there anything that I've left on the field that you think we need to discuss? Joseph, this has been a terrific conversation, and I really appreciate the chance to do it. Um, I hope people will, I think people will not only buy the big fix, but actually enjoy it. Um, the advantages of having a co-author who's a New York Times science reporter, a New York Times climate reporter, is you get a very readable and even compelling book. It's not stuck in my engineering patois. I've joked with friends that it's very hard to write a good climate book, in part because climate experts don't uniformly overlap with great being great writers. But I actually found this one very readable, two settings, and it was really dense and interesting. Oh, that's great. I appreciate that. And uh, I'm sure Justin Gillis will as well. Well, thank you so much, Hal. I look forward to our next conversation and all the best to you. Likewise, and thanks for this terrific opportunity. Thanks to Hal for joining us this week. There's a link in our show description to some of the reports Hal mentioned, as well as to his book, The Big Fix. I hope you will check them out. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. For updates, you can follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And as always, thanks for listening.